Lord, thanks for another morning. Thanks for another week. Thanks that you give us life. Uh, you're so good to us, Lord. I pray that you would carry us this morning, use us for your glory, and that you would be magnified in all things, Lord. Would you speak through me, and would we know you more and more uh, so you can be glorified and we can be free? We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. Good morning. My... I was like, I didn't even mean to do that. It's just I grew up in a church, and the pastor every Sunday would say, good morning, and like three people go, good morning, and they go, I said good morning, so we're going to do it, we're going to, it has to happen, apparently. Some of you who are, this is your first time in church, you're probably never coming back, so I apologize. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. <laughs> wow. My name is Charles, I'm one of our pastors here. Uh, grateful to be with you this morning, grateful to be able to preach as well. Um, yeah, that's, if you want to know more about me, I'll, I'll be around afterwards, I guess, but it's not about me today. So, uh, the goal today, which this may sound like a duh statement, but the goal with the sermon today is that you would know Jesus more. The, those of you who are Christians, who follow Jesus, that you would know him more, not just know about him, but that you would know him more and in turn know who you are in him. And for those of you in the room who aren't Christians, who aren't following Jesus, but are here, super glad you're here, uh, the goal is that you would know who Jesus is that you would hopefully come to know him and follow him with all of your life. And for the people who need to know, which is great, it's no negative, uh, like what's the main point of the sermon today? I was talking to my wife about this, and she said, I really like when John does that, because then I kind of know what to expect. And I was like, but then you're not like held in suspense the whole time. So here we are. The goal, the big idea is that to remember your identity, to defeat your idolatry. So... You have the text, you have the main point, you can probably go to breakfast and study it later. So uh, let's do a little time travel, back to a time we don't want to travel to, the spring of 2020. Great idea, Charles. What a way to start the sermon. Way to endear yourself to people. March of 2020, what we, how we would, we would refer to it as COVID hits, rapid fire, things are happening. It's like the world is shutting down from from east to west, and us here in Phoenix, we're going, oh my goodness, like restaurants are closing, oh my goodness, sports are canceled. Well, surely we'll have sports, because it's America, and we always have, oh, they don't have sports anymore. And some of you lost your jobs, others of you had to work from home, kids who are in school had to now do school at home, parents lost their minds, etc., etc. I don't have to recall everything, because you remember clearly. Now you're wondering, why the heck are we talking about March of 2020? Well, Something happened at that time pretty quickly. Streaming viewership went through the roof because you can now watch Netflix while on a Zoom call, mostly the students in the room probably, right, with your screen blacked out. But streaming numbers went crazy. And about a month into COVID, so April 2020, this historical documentary came out called The Last Dance. It was supposed to release later in the year, but they wisely and for good probably a lot of money, decided to move it up, and it was a huge hit, The Last Dance. Uh, critically acclaimed, it's won a ton of awards since, really well done. Uh, this documentary focused on the 1997-1998 Chicago Bulls basketball team. Did anybody watch that, The Last Dance? Okay, if you haven't, it's still available, I don't know, on some service. It's worth your time. I love history, I love 90s NBA, so it was like my jam. S super great until they got to the Phoenix Suns episode, and then I had like a visceral reaction and almost cried. I was like, oh no. 
So I mention this because the main character, the main focus of that team and really the world of basketball and this documentary was a guy named Michael Jordan. You may have heard of him. Some of you, please do not clap, okay? <laughs> do not clap. It's, the wounds are still, no, no, I was being serious. The wounds are still way too deep. So Michael Jordan, I even chose that picture because it's like he was the greatest offensive player of his time. He's also the greatest defensive player of his time. Those black jerseys that the Bulls came out with were like, I remember being a kid and those came out and I was like, well, they're not going to lose again, ever. Because their jerseys are already cool. The black and red is intimidating. He's, he's locked in. Like whoever is bringing the ball up the court is not going to win that matchup. Now, did anybody see, ever see Michael Jordan play in person in the room? Okay. Anybody see him play on TV? Probably a lot of people. Any Chicago Bulls fans in the room? Okay, kind of maybe one and a half. Any, uh, for those of you who are fans of other teams, do you remember that feeling that you had when your team had to play Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls? Especially when the stakes were high. Like I remember being a kid, I loved the basketball, loved the NBA, watched like all the finals, kept like, I didn't like reading, but every book I had was on the NBA. And I just remember thinking like, they're going to lose. Whoever is playing them in the finals is going to lose. He never went to a game seven, like just completely dominant. And if you look at his, even his Wikipedia page, like the amount of accolades are completely overwhelming. Gold medals and championships and MVPs and all the things. So I mentioned him because he's widely considered the greatest basketball player of all time. I would say arguably. I don't think it's arguable, but for the sake of conversation, maybe arguably. Uh, some say the greatest American athlete of all time. Some say the greatest athlete ever. He was number two behind Babe Ruth in terms of greatest sportsman in the 20th century. He was still playing at that time. He was number one in another poll that did the same survey. Just a completely dominant basketball player, athlete. He could have basically, whatever he did, he did it better than everybody else. Even to the point that you can watch interviews of other great basketball players who are like MVPs and would have been champions if not for him, and they will just tell you, he was just better than all of us. And oh, by the way, we were afraid to play him, which I don't know if you've ever met an athlete, but they have usually a thing called ego, and they don't usually talk about other athletes in those terms. Now, if you talk to people my age, mid-30s or older, and you say, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Almost all of them will say, a Michael Jordan. But I noticed a few years ago, talking to some of my younger friends, mid-20s, their answers changed. I say, who's the greatest of all time? And they're like, listen, Michael Jordan was good, but he didn't win a championship until he had Scottie Pippen. And I like won a rage, you know? <laughs> or Michael Jordan was good, but he didn't make, uh, you know, the finals and win until his eighth season. Like, you don't know how good the 80s Pistons were, right? I don't even know. So I was talking to my dad last week about this, unrelated to the sermon. He's almost 70. And he's like, dude, Magic Johnson was amazing. Kareem was amazing. Larry Bird, you can't imagine. But he's like, Michael Jordan was just better than all of them. Like, across the board, he's better. But these young guns, 25 and younger, they're like, Kobe's my goat. Goat means greatest of all time. And I'm like, there's no Kobe without Michael Jordan. Or they'll say, well, LeBron's the greatest ever. I'm like, statistically, you can make an argument for that. But the difference is this. They watch YouTube highlights. They read the stats. And they look at all these objective facts and, they, facts and they say, well, LeBron has more points or whatever it may be. They never saw him. 
right? They never watched him play. I remember being a kid, never saw him in person, but watched, watched all the games, even just like Space Jam. I'm like, LeBron, like, <laughs> come on. Like, Jordan has a way better stat line than LeBron in the Space Jam movies, you know? He's a cultural icon, got milk and Nike and McDonald's. Like, if you didn't even watch basketball, you knew who Michael Jordan was. And I know he's the greatest ever because I watch a ton of basketball and I watched him play and remembered how, like, completely dominant he was in a way that no one was prior probably and has been since. But these young people who never saw him, they just don't know because they never saw him play. Now, you might be wondering, again, for like the third time, why are we talking about Michael Jordan on a Sunday morning? Yes, I love basketball. No, it's not the most important thing. Well, the reason is this. I think it's a clear connection to what's happening with this First John letter, this book that we're reading. David Beldman did a great job with it a few weeks ago when he introduced the, the book to us, uh, giving background context. So this, this letter is written in the late first century, somewhere around like 90 probably. Uh, John is the one who's written it. He was one of the disciples. He was the one who Jesus loved or the beloved. He walked with Jesus for those years. He was at the crucifixion. He was at the empty tomb, right? He's like, and then they raced Peter and John was faster. You're like, okay, kind of a weird subtle flex, John. He was all, he saw it all. And then he spent time with the resurrected Jesus. So John is there the whole time of Jesus's public ministry. And again, he referred to himself as the beloved, which again might sound weird, but the reason it's widely thought that he did that is because he knew his identity in Christ so well that it was like his name, John, was forgotten, and he just became the one that Jesus loved. He was the one who was laying on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper because they were so close, which culturally for us is not a normal thing, but for that time was very normal. And so John's writing this letter to these churches because there's these people who were a part of the church at that time who have since left the church. They've left because they don't believe that Jesus is who he says he was. He, they don't believe that Jesus is who John and the church say he was. And they don't believe the gospel anymore. They believe, well, Jesus was just a guy and the spirit kind of was in him. Or he was like not really fully human. Like they, they didn't believe in who he was. Fully God, fully man. And therefore, they didn't believe the gospel. And they didn't just leave. They started attacking the church, uh, deceiving the church, trying to pull people away. So John writes this letter to the church to tell the people the truth. Now, the thing is this. These people leaving the church most likely never saw Jesus, right? Michael Jordan connection. Okay, there it is. John, at the beginning of this letter, says, like, we've seen him, touched him, heard him. I was there. I can tell you it's real because I literally saw it. Like, Christians are called witnesses. That started because people in the early church actually saw Jesus. They saw him resurrected. They were witnesses to what Jesus did and who Jesus was. And so that's our context that we walk into this letter. And it makes, I think, clarifies a lot of things. And up until this point, John has written to these believers and he's encouraged them in their faith. And it seems kind of hard-hitting because it's like every other verse if you say you're a liar, or if you say you walk with Jesus and you don't, you're a liar. And oh, by the way, you make God a liar, and you're a deceiver. And you're like, well, that kind of hits hard because I sin all the time. But then the other verses say, but if you sin, you're free in Christ. You're forgiven. He's paid the price. You have this advocate with the Father on your behalf. 
So he's writing these encouragement and these reminders for, to the believers to continue walking and for us to continue walking in Christ. He uses contrasts of light and dark, truth and lie, obedience and disobedience, love and hate in relating to how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And so that brings us to our text today. Verse 12, let's dive in. If you have your Bible, First John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 is what we'll read. He says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, either on your phone or in uh, what, a, a paper version, a book, that's what they're called, uh, you'll see even format-wise, this is different looking. Right? He's, it's all paragraphs up to this point, and then it becomes like almost like a poem, like a poetic stanza, and then it's also repetitive. He says, I'm writing to you little children, then fathers, then young men, then he says children, fathers, young men. And we see in this passage, there's these different groups. We're going to do a little like digging, Bible study-wise in a second. Uh, there's these different groups, little children, children, fathers, and young men that he uh, identifies and writes to here. Now, scholars are split on exactly what this means. I think we can get Bible studies really important. We need to know context and things like that to, so we can come alive for our lives. Uh, and also, there's some mystery with God, and that's okay too. But scholars are split. Some think that these are specific, like, maturity levels within the church, that the, the children are new believers, young men are people who've been walking with Jesus for a while, and the fathers would be uh, people who walk with Jesus for a really long time, really mature, wise Christians. Others think it's actually fathers and children and young men. Uh, I think little children, at the beginning there in verse 12, is how he identifies and writes to the church a number of times throughout the book. So I think that could be argued, too, that that's just to everybody. But he's reminding these different groups that of the truth of who they are and what God has done in Christ because of his work and his love for them. In verse 12, it says, uh, little children, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In verse uh, 12, or 13, sorry, and again, in 14, he's writing to the fathers, and he says, you have known him who's from the beginning, which is Jesus. He's writing to the young men because they've overcome the evil one, and then it says later, uh, the word of God abides in them, and they're strong, which as a younger man, uh, I would, like, that's massively healing to me, to go, oh, I'm forgiven, the word is in me, I'm strong, okay. I can walk with Jesus because I've overcome the evil one. So he's writing these things to remind the people of who they are. He's written all these instructions up to this point that could, without a reminder of who they are, just feel like rules. Okay, I need to walk with Jesus because I can't sin and I shouldn't sin. But guess what? We're going to sin. Like we're going to mess up. We're not perfect. That's why we need a Savior. And without their identity, like I said, it's just rules. It's just duty. But he's writing this section to remind the people of who they are. He's reminding them of their identity. 
And we need this reminder all the time. And we'll, I'll hit on this multiple times probably today, but it's like, I often, I get in my truck after church and it's like, Lord, thank you, that was amazing. I'm so encouraged. I ran into so many encouraging people. I feel so filled up. And then somebody like turns without turning their blinker on. And I like want to rage, right? Like the other day, some guy pulled in front of me. I was, I was the first guy at the stoplight. And this dude from Florida, take, use that for however you want to. I don't have anything for or against Florida. He goes in the right turn lane, and I was like, whatever. And then he pulls in front of me and stops in the crosswalk so he can be first. Not on a motorcycle. And I like have never been tempted to road rage, but it ha- I, I, it did, I didn't road rage. But I was tempted. And I kind of gave a little boop, and he's like, whatever, man. Drives off and then flips me off. I was like, bro. <sighs> and the Lord is like, no, no, no. You have too much go- to live for. You have a wife and kids. <laughs> this will not go well with a sermon on Sunday. But like the justice in me, right? It was like to- this like good justice from the Lord, I think. And then my flesh was like, and then I'll just, I don't know. Starbucks parking lot is going to go down? I don't know. What? What am I thinking? All that to say we forget all the time. I forget all the time like that I'm saved, that I'm called to walk in Jesus, that I'm supposed to love people well and be patient with people. And I don't know what that guy's story is or what would cause him to do those things. And it's, all, it's also not that huge of a deal, right? But I was like, this is a massive injustice. <laughs> I forget my identity. You do too. And we need to have these reminders. You need to have these reminders to remember your identity. Identity is this term that gets thrown around so much in our culture right now. It's massively uh, on the forefront of everything. We have this American individualism, which is from our roots of people coming here for religious freedom and to kind of blaze their own trail. And now it's generations later become like, whatever you do is good for you, whatever you, I do is good for me. But when we all are in this together, it doesn't actually work like that. And then God calls us actually to give ourselves to him. Because he's created us and he knows what's best. And so there's actually joy in, in suffering, which is so counterintuitive. And there's life in death. And maybe I know John has talked about that J-curve. Like the path of Jesus is down and then it's towards resurrection. Through suffering and death and these uh, giving up of yourself so that you can love people and love God. And then there's joy. And sometimes that joy only comes in heaven. And we were in need to remember our identity in Christ. Verse 15. After John gives this big uh, encouragement of who the people are, he then continues on. He says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think the first thing we need to do with this text is define what the world is. Because some of you in this room are like, didn't God say he loved the world? Didn't John, like in John 3.16... Same guy, same writer, same God, say he loved the world. And now he's saying, like, the world's evil. This is confusing. Well, the Greek word for world, I'd like to just say I don't know Greek, so don't be like, oh, he knows Greek. I don't know Greek. But 
we can figure this out. The Greek word for world is cosmos, okay? Super impressive. And that can mean three things. One, it can mean the actual created world, like the thing we're standing on, the creation that God has created. The other one could be all the people in the world, which is how it's used in John 3.16, that God so loved the world. He loves all these people. Even in the beginning of 1 John, it talks about he died for the sins of the world. And then the third way that this word cosmos, which is translated the world, is, is like the evil systems that have been set up by the devil that oppose God and his kingdom. So it doesn't take much to figure out that it feels like almost every voice that you hear tells you the opposite of what God has called you to. Like TV shows are f- and movies are filled with adultery and all these horrible things. And it's so subtle that we don't even notice it half the time. And yet God has called you to walk in uh, your singleness if you're single, which I know some of you are like, you're married, you don't know, but singleness is such a gift, however long that season would be. And those of you who are married, God has called you to love your spouse sacrificially. And the world would tell you, like, as soon as it gets bad, just leave, because it's about you. So there's these systems in place that the devil has set up to fight against God and his kingdom. And that's the world that John is referring to in this text when he says, do not love the world, it's passing away, it's evil. In verse 16, there's three categories. He says, "Uh, I wore my glasses today, not to impress you. I've heard multiple times I look scholarly, which makes you wonder how I look without my glasses. (laughs) But I ran out of contacts, so here we are. But I think I need like a tick better prescription. So anyways... I'm like, is that a number or a letter? So verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So even John gives some categories here of, hey, I say don't love the world or the things in the world. This is what I'm talking about. Now, these three categories given most likely address specific sin issues that were in the church at the time that John was writing to. They also, I think, give a big, broad umbrella to cover a whole bunch of sins, right? The, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, or the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Now, these categories are not new categories for sin. They're not new categories for temptation. We can look at Genesis chapter 3. You don't need to flip there. We'll throw it on the screen. Uh, at the first ever sin, the first temptation, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've been created by God to walk with God and to tend the garden and delight in his creation. There's no separation between them and God. It's how it should be. And then the devil enters and tempts and says, hey, did God really tell you? Does he really have your best in mind? Let me tell you a better way. And in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says this, then the woman, so when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, which would be the desires of the flesh, and it was delightful to the eyes the desires of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This is not a new formula for the devil. Whether it's the things inside of us in our hearts, or the things our eyes is constantly on the lookout for, or just the pride that lurks within us, none of those things are from the Lord. We're created to see and delight in good, godly things. 
We're created to desire good, godly things. We're created to be humble and walk with God, and yet everything in us pushes the opposite direction. And John here says, these things are not from the Father, but they're from the world. And even in James 4.4, talking about this concept of the world being evil and all these different things, James says this, you adulterous people, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. That's startling. That's not how most of us think. That's not how our culture thinks. Our culture tells us that like, as long as you're not like a murderer, then you do you, and it's all good. And yet, the Bible says throughout that there's one way, and it's the way of God. And anything opposite is actually not just bad, but it makes you an enemy of God. God writes this through John so that we can, so that you can remember your identity. Why? To defeat your idolatry. Now, what the heck is idolatry? We don't, most of us, go home and have like a bunch of weird statues in the corner of our living room, and you're like, well, that's the God of uh, my retirement plan, and that's the God of education, and that's the God of uh, my family, and yet we have all these little gods in our hearts that fight for our affections more than God himself. Now, I think it's worth noting, like, we're talking about the world, how it's evil. God has created a really good creation. So if you're in Christ, you get to delight in good things like family and job and, I don't know, like, pump, I don't know, pumping gas, like, going to the grocery store, watching a good show or sports game. Sports game? Is that how it's even said? What's happening right now? But God has given all these good gifts. Like you can bite into a good meal and just go, like this is how it's supposed to be. And you can delight in all these gifts. But when these gifts become greater than the giver, that's when it becomes an idol. That's when it becomes sinful. In verse 17, it says this, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So again, a clear either or. We see in these three verses uh, two different tracks, one uh, evil and one good, one of the world and one of God and his people. And for the world side, it says that the love of the world comes from the world and the world will pass away. But God's people, God's design is that the love of the Father comes from the Father and the one who obeys him remains forever. John, throughout this book, up until this point, it hasn't been a ton of verses we've covered, but from the jump, he's just constantly reminding you as a Christian, walk with Jesus. If you're not walking with Jesus, you're walking against him. This is a theme that's prevalent throughout the Bible. Good and evil, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Even in Psalm chapter 1, we see it clearly painted that the righteous person walks uh, not with evil. They don't stop and stand with evil. They don't sit with evil because they know that God is better. So they spend time with him and his word. 
And then it paints this picture of the righteous person is like a tree that's planted by a stream of water. So you can think like, okay, it's going to always have abundant life source. It says it bears its fruit in its season. It says its leaves never wither because it's planted by this water source. It's strong. It's not like these giant trees in Phoenix that like a minor monsoon comes. You're like, that's a 200-year-old tree and the roots were this deep. But like the righteous person is this strong tree that will last forever. And it says in Psalm 1 that the wicked person is like chaff, not a common word. Chaff is the dust that's left over after all the wheat has been grinded out of the plant. So the righteous person is like this tree that's planted by this water. It's never, probably never going to die. And the wicked, if I had a thing of dust in my hand, within two seconds you would never see it again. God, the way of him, and his people in him will remain forever. But if you're walking against God, not only will you have destruction in your life, but it'll end in destruction. It says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those of you who know Jesus must remember your identity to defeat your idolatry. Uh, are there any big readers in the room? Okay, like five of you. Awesome. Six. Okay. It's a good thing to read. I really don't like reading. <laughs> I have a master's degree. It was painful, okay? Because I don't like reading or writing, and I wish somebody would have told me ahead of time. It's like all you do. I literally changed my major in college from history teaching to Spanish teaching because I just didn't want to grade essays. That's, that's a true story. Obviously, it worked out. I don't do either of those jobs anymore. Um, but I've been trying to read this summer. I'm really trying to read. Jim has been subtly pressuring me for like six years that I should read more. I'm like, I'll try, Jim. So I read this book the other day. It's called The Great Divorce. It's by C.S. Lewis. I read it in two days. I'm extremely proud. It's like 110 pages. That doesn't matter. It's a lot of pages. <laughs> it's a lot of pages to me. So I did finish the book, and I say that because this quote is from the preface, the first three pages. So C.S. Lewis, this book, The Great Divorce, is a, is a fictional account of, um, it's, it's just really good. You should read it. But these people who basically take a bus from hell to heaven and see all these different things going on. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if we insist on keeping hell or even earth, I think he's talking about this category of the world that John's talking about. We shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven and Jesus, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. When we walk with Jesus, he's all we need. He's all we need. It says in Psalms that in God's presence, there's fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has more pleasures in his right hand than you could ever imagine or feel here on earth. And yet, in God's presence, it's more delightful than anything we could ever imagine. He's constantly, John is constantly reminding the believers to walk in Christ, to walk against sin. He's constantly reminding them of the truth of the gospel, that when they do sin, they have an advocate, that they have this payment, that they have this savior and redeemer in Christ and that they're free, and to walk in their freedom. And yet we so often cling to idols. 
And idols are sneaky because we usually don't even know they're there. So I don't consider myself a greedy person at all. Uh, my other job is I work here part-time. I'm a realtor full-time. I've like, most of you don't know that. That's intentional, and I didn't come up here to, it was not in my notes because I tried to talk about it because I don't want there to be some, well, he's trying to get clients. It's not the goal. Uh, last year, about this time, the real estate market like completely grinded to a halt, and we had just moved and like pulled a bunch of money from our savings account to pay for a down payment. And I was like, this is great because I'll keep making what I normally make, and it'll be great. I'm not a greedy person. We try to be really generous, blah, blah, blah. Well, we spent all this money. We felt like it was totally of the Lord, this move, and then I'd like made less money in those nine months than I'd made and any mind month stretch ever, even when I was brand new. And the whole time I'm watching, like I'm self-employed technically, I make, it's 100% commission, there's no employer like sending a paycheck except me paying myself, and I'm watching my payment, my account go lower and lower and lower, and I'm realizing the Lord's reminding me through all this, you're kind of doing this when it comes to money and security and pride and being a provider, and he kept reminding me of his scripture, like, I care about the birds, that even the pigeons, you're way more valuable than they are. Look at the flowers. I dress them, you'll have clothes. I know how many hairs are on your head. I've told you I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Don't worry about money. And it was this subtle, like, surgery over the course of months that was really not enjoyable, but he constantly reminded me of like, I'm going to provide for you guys. You guys are gonna be able to pay your mortgage. You're gonna be able to feed your family. You're gonna have enough money to pay for your bills. I was with you when I told you to move. Of course I'm gonna be with you when it seems like I'm not gonna give you any money. And lo and behold, I got paid just the right amount right before I was about to run out of money over and over and over again. And all through it, which that's a huge blessing, but all through it, the bigger blessing was this revealing to me, man, I was holding this stuff really tight. And I didn't think I was doing it all. And yet I had this idolatry of like providing for my family and being successful in the eyes of other people and having money. And yet God was revealing all that in me and it wasn't from him. C.S. Lewis, I won't quote it directly, but he talks in that same book about how, yes, lust and pride and greed are really bad, but often loving your kids or your spouse or patriotism, when they become bigger than God, those are way sneakier and they, get way, they hold you way tighter than these obvious sins. So what, my question to you would be, what are you holding tighter than you hold God? What are you finding your identity in more than your identity in Christ? What do you love more than you love God. Because these things are not from the Lord. God has given you a family to delight in them and love them, but not to elevate them above him. He's given you all these good things so you can enjoy them, but not so that you could worship them. And we have to constantly be reminded of who we are in Christ so that we can constantly fight sin. Church, remember your identity. Remember that God loves you. Remember that you are saved and free so that you can defeat your idolatry, that you can defeat sin and walk in that freedom. Church, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
You know him who's from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one, which may sound preposterous to you, but Jesus has beaten sin and death, and you are in him. You know the Father, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. So walk in that freedom, walk in that love, and live as a Christian. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We really want to delight in you. It's really hard. Our eyes and our flesh and our minds feel like they're constantly just searching for something other than you to fill us, and yet none of those things that aren't from you fill us. They actually make us more empty. Your kindness leads us to repentance. Your kindness leads us to walk in freedom. Please strengthen us in that freedom. So walk in you, Lord. Reveal our sin. Let us be humble. Let us ask for forgiveness. And let us remember as we ask for forgiveness that you love us so dearly that there's no condemnation. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. In a moment, we'll take some time of silence. Uh, Jared, you got, the, you got the invitation? Okay, Jared will lead us in an invitation to communion. Our servers will come down. And those of you who are Christians who follow Jesus, we'd invite you to come receive the bread and dip it into the juice. Gluten-free people, your stuff's in the middle. I'm one of you. Okay, I don't know if we should be excited about that. But we take communion every week, not as some ritual. We take communion. We're given the bread to dip into the juice to remember what Jesus has done and who he is and the love that you have in him because we forget. Like I said, I forget all the time. You forget all the time. And we come here and take this so we can be reminded that the gospel really is true, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is who he says he is, and he's with you. He loves you. God loves you, and you're his. Those of you who aren't Christians in this room, we would ask you not to come up because it just doesn't make sense. We're trying to remember something that we believe, and if you don't believe it, it's just kind of strange. But my encouragement to you would be, man, like, God loves you. God loves you so much, so much that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He was killed. He's murdered for your bad choices. And so all you have to do is say, you're Lord Jesus, you're God. I want you to be God over my life. Forgive me of my sins. And you're saved forever. And you can walk in him and be with him. So I'll pray again. We'll take some silence and Jared will lead us uh, to come get communion in a minute. Lord, thanks again for your grace, Lord. We pray that we would just know you more. I pray for anybody in this room that doesn't know you, that wouldn't consider themselves a Christian, that's seeking, trying to figure out what this life's about, who they are, who you are. Lord, would you just be really near to them and be really sweet to them? Pray against the voices of condemnation and injustice and whatever other lies we're all told. Be magnified, Lord, in your name. Amen.